0: It is indeed a pleasure and a privilege to be here again with you at Lusaka Baptist Church. I am always, always pleased, um, under whatever circumstances, to have this opportunity. Um, grateful to God for the invitation that has come my way and bring greetings to the saints here from the brethren at uh, Hillview Baptist Church. This morning, my assignment is to address the issue of the new birth. This is an important, and believe it or not, a controversial issue. The question of the new birth is one that has been debated down through the ages within Christendom, and it has important implications. There are two basic understandings of the new birth. The new birth, by the way, is referred to, is using the word regeneration often in scriptures. Sometimes it will be translated as born again. Other times it will be translated as regeneration. Uh, to regenerate means to be born again. The, the phrase born again Christian believe it or not, is one that was popularized by a former American president, Jimmy Carter, who identified himself as such, as a as a born-again Christian. Um, differentiating between sort of cultural Christianity, people who identify themselves as Christian because, well, um, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not a Buddhist, uh, my family goes to church, therefore I'm a Christian. The idea of the born-again Christian supposed to be The idea of clarifying and differentiating and saying, no, 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 I've actually come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, I'm I'm a born again Christian. Uh, Sometimes we use different phrases nowadays. Uh, So, uh, a a popular athlete or a popular actor or actress or singer uh, comes to faith, and we don't just say they're a Christian, we say, "No, no, no, so and so is a strong Christian. No, so-and-so is a committed Christian. There has to be some adjective there to separate those individuals who are just culturally Christian versus those individuals who have actually come to faith in Christ. And so the phrase has been used historically in that way, born again. However, there are two ways that we view the idea of being born again one is the idea that being born again is what brings you to salvation being born again is what brings you to salvation this idea is sort of popularized during the crusades of the 1950s and 60s now not 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 the historical crusades but the crusades the evangelistic crusades of the 1950s and 60s where people were called upon to be born again to make a decision so that they could be born again so the idea was um, you 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 trust christ you you receive christ you decide to receive christ as lord and as a result of your decision you are then born again popularized really under the preaching of individuals like billy sunday and billy graham the idea that that re- regeneration is something that is a, a byproduct of your decision you decide and then you become born again because you have decided however on the other side is the idea that regeneration actually precedes faith that we're born again and it's because we're born again that we are able to place our faith in christ that regeneration comes first That may seem like a small thing, but it has serious implications. It says something about what we believe of the nature, about the nature of fallen man. And it says something about what we believe about the nature of God's work in the life of fallen man. What I'd like to do is read a passage of scripture for us and then sort of look at the way that this doctrine has been discussed historically And then come back to that text and examine it in light of that historical discussion. If you have your Bibles, open them to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. We'll look at a number of portions of Scripture this morning. But our our main text here will be Ephesians, chapter 2. There are a number of portions of Scripture Wherein we find the teaching about regeneration. We, we won't look at them exhaustively, but we'll try to hit the highlights. But we'll be guided by Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. The new birth. I want to look at a few, the details of three key debates over this idea of regeneration. There is the idea or the debate rather between Augustine and Pelagius in the 5th century and then the debate between Luther and Erasmus in the 16th century and then shortly after that the debate between uh, Arminius and Calvin which was really between the students of Arminius and the students of Calvin really in 1618, 1619 first Augustine and Pelagius Pelagius rejected the idea of original sin. He he rejected the idea that that man was was totally depraved and that man could not respond to God. He believed that man had the power to choose Christ and live a righteous life because of his free will. Augustine rejected both of these ideas. He rejected the idea of Pelagius in denying original sin, and he rejected the idea that man had the power to choose Christ and to live a righteous life because of his free will. Augustine won the Pelagian debate in 418, and Pelagius was condemned as a heretic. Now, this is an important point because many Christians today, if not most, Still hold to a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian idea, even though it has been openly rejected as heresy. Most people believe that man has unchecked, unlimited free will, and deny the biblical doctrine of original sin, and believe that somehow man has enough of a remnant, uh, enough of, or the remnants rather. Of, of that freedom that we had in Adam, to be able to respond on his own. Well the next debate was in the 16th century, was Luther and Erasmus. Erasmus argued for free will on grounds similar to those of Pelagius. Luther wrote his greatest work, "The Bondage of the Will," in refutation of Erasmus's position and in fact thanked Erasmus for bringing out what he thought was his best work. Now, Luther acknowledged that men make choices, but believed that in the area of choosing God, the will of man had no power. And it's important to understand this distinction. A lot of people think that that if you say, if you deny this idea of man's free will in choosing God and choosing good, that somehow you make man an automaton. That, that you're arguing that men don't make choices. And of course, men make choices. We, we see that all the time. We, we sense our freedom in making choices. It's not the argument that's being made here. Listen to the way Luther explained it. A man without the spirit of God does not do evil against his will under pressure as though he were taken by the scruff of the neck and dragged into it like a thief, being dragged off against his will to punishment. But he does it spontaneously and voluntarily. And this willingness of volition is something which he cannot in his own strength eliminate, restrain, or alter. He goes on willing and desiring to do evil and if external pressure forces him to act otherwise nevertheless his will within remains averse to so doing and he chafes under such constraint and opposition we are bent toward evil and we cannot choose good think of it this way can a can a cow choose to eat meat is a cow free to eat meat and the answer is of course he's free to eat meat but he will never choose to do it because it is completely against every fiber of his being to do so is a man free to choose God yes is a man free to choose righteousness yes But it is against every fiber of his fallen being, and in and of himself, he will never choose God and never choose the good. If I put ice cream before you, and I put, you know, vanilla and chocolate and strawberry, are you free to choose the ice cream that you want? Yes. But guess what you didn't choose? You didn't choose your taste buds. You also didn't choose your first experience with ice cream or your favorite experience with ice cream and all of those things that you had absolutely no control over will contribute in determining how you exercise what you believe to be your freedom. Well, there is the last debate between Calvin and Arminius or really between the students of Calvin and the students of Arminius. Jacob Arbenius was a systematic theology professor at the University of Leiden in Holland. After his death, his students protested the dust, the, the Dutch confession. A- and they made five points of protest against the Dutch profession. This is incredibly important. They're protesting this profession of faith. And they have five points of protest against the profession of faith. That, that to us... You ever heard the term, of course you've heard the term, you're a member of Lusaka Baptist Church, five-point Calvinist. It's always interesting to me when people object to Calvinism and they say, well, you know, Calvin takes this system and he forces his system on the scriptures. No, it was the students of Arminius who made five objections to the Dutch Confession. And the students of Calvin and the Synod of Dort responded to those five objections with what we know as the tulip total depravity. Man is fallen and totally, totally depraved, not as depraved as he possibly could be, but in every aspect of his person and being. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. This is not something The students of Calvin just sort of woke up one day and said, you know, we need to make up a system. No, there was a direct attack against the confession. And these five points were a response to that direct attack. So historically, this is where the debate comes. But what do we mean when we use these words regeneration? And and we use these words to be born again. And let me be clear. I am arguing from the Augustinian side and against the Pelagian side. I am arguing from the Lutheran side and against Erasmus. I am arguing from from Calvin's side and against Arminius. I am arguing from the side that believes that regeneration precedes faith. It doesn't produce it. I am arguing from the side that we are dead, that we are ruined, that we are totally depraved. And unless God makes us alive, we cannot and will not ever choose God or good in and of ourselves. Because we're fallen. Our minds are corrupt. Our wills are corrupt. And we choose sin and self. Always. So I'm arguing from that side. Here are some definitions. Listen to this from Charles Hodge. Regeneration is a subjective change wrought in the soul by the grace of God. Wayne Grudem. In the work of regeneration, we play no role at all. It is instead totally a work of God. And to put an even finer point on it, James Boyce The scriptures teach that regeneration is the work of God, changing the heart of man by his sovereign will, while conversion is the act of man turning toward God with the new inclination thus given to his heart. Regeneration comes first. We respond to the gospel in repentance and faith because we've been regenerated, because we've been born again. We don't make a response to become born again. We're born again so that we can make a response. There are tremendous implications here. Our understanding of evangelism centers on our understanding of this point. If I believe that man's will determines whether or not he'll be born again, then my approach to evangelism is one that seeks to manipulate the will of man and and just to do whatever it takes to bring him to a decision. Whereas if I understand that regeneration precedes faith, then my goal is to be faithful and clear with the gospel, trusting in God to do that which only God can do it's interesting at this point Charles Spurgeon I I believe said it best when he said that when it comes to praying for people's conversions everybody prays like a Calvinist amen we don't say Lord would you please how would you even pray how would a Pelagian pray for the salvation of someone how how would Erasmus pray for the salvation of someone how how would an Armenian pray for the salvation of someone they pray just like a Calvinist. God changed their heart. God opened their eyes. Everybody prays like a Calvinist when it comes to praying for the salvation of the lost. And yet, for most people, they hold to the thought theology of a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian until it comes time to start praying that God would save lost people. Even if we do evangelism like Arminians and Pelagians, we pray for evangelism, like Calvinists, like Augustinians. And so back in our text then, what what does our text say about this new birth and what are the implications of that for us as believers, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first, we see in those first three verses that it is our fallen nature that brings about the need of the new birth. Verses one through three. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead men walking. We were dead. Not, not almost dead, not kind of dead, not nearly dead. We were dead. It's interesting that, you know, in trying to illustrate salvation, those on the uh, Pelagian, Armenian, uh, you know, Erasmus side of the equation will, will often use an illustration like this. It is as though a man, a lost man were, were, were drowning. And he's going down for the last time. And, and God through the gospel extends a life preserver to the drowning man. And God is there and he will do 99% of the work. You just have to reach out. You have to grab a hold and he'll save you. Um, The problem with that is that it completely ignores what we find in the text. I am not a doctor and I do not play one on TV. However, I know enough about medicine to know this. Dead men don't grab things. Amen, somebody? Dead men don't grab things. That illustration doesn't work, because the Bible doesn't say you were almost dead and going down for the last time. The Bible says you were a bloated corpse on the bottom of the ocean floor, dead as dead can be, with nothing in you that could possibly respond you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins. And note the nature of this here. You're dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What are we, zombies? Spiritually speaking, yes. Yes. Listen to the way that our confession, the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, puts this in chapter 9 paragraph 3 man by his fall into a state of sin hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation so as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or prepare himself thereunto Not only can you not convert yourself, you can't even get yourself ready. The only thing you bring to the party is the sin that needs to be forgiven. There is nothing in you that qualifies you for salvation. Everything in you qualifies you for death and hell. John chapter 3 verses 3 through 8 Famous passage. Jesus answered him, speaking to Nicodemus, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God." Isn't that interesting? Because people say, no, no, "No, we're born again when you know we we hear the gospel and we make a decision. We choose. No, how can you make a decision if you can't see the kingdom of God? How can you make a decision for the kingdom if you can't even see the kingdom?" That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Your flesh doesn't do this. Your flesh can't do this. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. First Peter 1, 22 and 23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God since you have been born again not only does Paul highlight the need for the new birth but he also shows us the purpose of it Look at verses 4 through 6. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, just in case you didn't get it in those first few few verses, right? You you, you were dead. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Did I born myself again? No. No. He made me alive together with Christ. Listen, I can no more manufacture the second birth than I manufactured the first one. Did I choose to be born the first time? No. And if you've ever been there, when I have, I've been there. I've been there when that happens. Children don't come into the world excited about leaving the womb. They come kicking and screaming and basically in their own way saying, why did you take me away from where I was? They didn't choose to be conceived. They don't choose to be born. There's a reason that God in his word uses the metaphor of birth. You don't choose regeneration. Regeneration chooses you. Since man is dead in his trespasses and sin, his only hope for regeneration is that it happens by some external power. That's the only way it can happen if you're dead in your sin. When we were dead God made us alive. Not when we were dead we got tired of being dead and we chose to be. No. When we were dead God made us alive. Romans 8 verses 5 through 8 an important passage. Let's look at 1 Peter 1 verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What? He caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christ was born again from the dead, and it is through and because of that resurrection from the dead that we have regeneration and new birth. Now, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. This is critical. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Do, do you see that? It can not those who are in the flesh can not please God you can not you cannot and this is why this is why Satan is so sinister and so deceptive And here's why this doctrine is so important. Because we want to believe that we can save ourselves. We have a natural bent toward works righteousness. And what we want to hear, even when we come to church, what we want to hear is a list of things that we can do to make us feel more righteous. To make us feel better about ourselves. Give me a list of moral requirements so that I can have my list of moral requirements and say I'm better than my fellow man because I don't do these five things and I do these five things. I am a good person and lost people come to hear and they listen for what they need to do and they listen for you need to stop doing this and you need to start doing that. Because here's what Satan wants. Here's what Satan loves. What Satan loves is for men to believe that they are right with God when they are not. We're bent toward worship. Satan doesn't care about you worshiping. He wants you to worship. He didn't care about you going to church. As long as your trust is in something other than Christ, as long as your trust is in works righteousness, legalism, moralism, he's fine with that. It keeps you content and it keeps you from the cross. you believe if you just do a little more if you just work a little harder but paul says the mind that is set on the flesh this is the one that has not been regenerated by the way it's hostile to god it's hostile to god by the way hostility to god does not mean that you're necessarily running in the opposite direction what does paul tell timothy in second timothy chapter 4 to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time is coming and is now here when men will not endure sound doctrine. And what does he say they will do? They will not endure sound doctrine, but instead they will run off and go, no, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. You see, that's what we do. We don't want sound doctrine. So what we do is we look around for people who will proximate the truth. I want works righteousness. I want legalism. I want moralism. So when I hear something that calls me away from that, I will then go and look around until I find somebody who scratches my itching ears and gives me what I'm looking for. You see, Satan's greatest deception is not a complete lie. His greatest deception is a partial truth. So we need to be born again because of our sin nature. We can be born again only by God's power he's the source of the new birth but 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 what's the what's the purpose of the new birth new birth I would say magnifying God's grace is the purpose of the new birth new new birth based on our text look at what we find here beginning at verse 7 why does he do this so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast." You see, here's the difference one side says this i am saved because other you know there's two people who come to church and and they sit together they come from the same family twins and they sit and listen to the same sermons their whole life but one day one of them comes to faith and the other one does not well the the pelagian side says that person came to faith because they exercised their will where the other one did not. They made the right choice, the other person made the wrong choice. They softened their heart, the other one hardened their heart. In other words, there is something praiseworthy in this one that does not exist in that one. That's the danger of the Pelagian heresy it gives you cause to boast. But the Augustinian side says there is no boasting. The Pauline side says there is no boasting. Man is dead in his sin and he can't save himself. God is merciful toward the sinner who deserves death. And the awakened sinner becomes an obedient adopted son or daughter magnifying God's grace Romans 3:27 then what becomes of boasting it is excluded by what kind of law by the law of works no but by the law of faith boasting is excluded i am not a christian because i was smarter than the people who didn't figure out i am not a christian because i was morally superior to the ones who chose otherwise I am a Christian by God's grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone back in Ephesians 1 verses 3 through 6 Praise be to God for His glorious grace in making us alive together with Christ. According to some, this is a damnable heresy. For example, the Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent. Council of Trent is, is, is a response to the Reformation. The Council of Trent, they, they make themselves very clear. Session 6, Canon number 9 reads If anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified, so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. Literally, let him be damned to hell. If he holds to the doctrine that I am explaining here this morning. This is no slight difference. This is another gospel. Trent, session 6, canon 11. If anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ alone, or by the remission of sins alone to the exclusion of the grace and love that is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, and is inherent in them, or even that the grace by which we are justified is only the favor of God, let him be anathema. In other words, if you hold to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, if you hold to the Augustinian side versus the Pelagian side, it is a damnable heresy. why do i share these things with you two Two reasons reasons. number one i I want to show you that the debate continues but secondly i want to show you that many people hold to this roman catholic idea listen to the the first one look at canon nine if anyone says that by faith alone the sinner is justified so as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification what do the semi-pelagians argue no, no no you have to cooperate the life preserver is thrown out there but you have to reach up and grab it folks that's a semi-pelagian view do you, do you see this This is going back to an ancient heresy. Finally. Obedience is the fruit of the new birth. Here's the problem that many have with the teaching of regeneration preceding faith. With with the teaching of predestination and so on and so forth. The idea is that it it, it leads people down this road of, of easy believism. It leads people down this road of lawlessness. If we argue that, that all the gospel requires is repentance and faith. Not, not works of obedience, not, not any of that, that, that's That's not what's required. In fact, you can't do those works of obedience apart from the grace of the gospel. They're afraid that that will lead to some kind of looseness or some lawlessness. But listen to this. Obedience is not excluded here. Obedience, however, is seen as the fruit of regeneration, not the cause of regeneration. Look at verse 10, Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Clearly, Paul is teaching regeneration precedes faith. Clearly, Paul is teaching we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Clearly, Paul is teaching that works have nothing to do with our salvation. And clearly, Paul is teaching that this salvation produces good works. Obedience is the fruit, not the cause. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Because of our regeneration. Matthew 7, beginning at 17. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire thus you will recognize them by their fruit verse 21 on that day many will say to me Lord, Lord did we not prophesy in your name cast out demons in your name do many mighty works in your name And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, these people were doing good works. But they hear, I never knew you. Which means those works were actually lawlessness. Why? Because we got the order wrong. We believed that it was our obedience that made us right with God. That there was a list of things that we could do that made us right with God. Jesus says, get away from me. I don't know you. There was one door. And it is the door of faith, not the door of works. That which is not a faith is sin. You can be the hardest working person in the church and die and go to hell here every time the doors are open and die and go to hell because you're holding to a Pelagian works righteousness believing that you are earning God's favor as opposed to trusting in Christ alone for your salvation John 14 22 to 24 Jesus answered him if anyone loves me he will keep my word and my father's and my father will love him and he will come to him and make our home with him or rather we will come to him and make our home with him whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the words that you hear the word that you hear is not mine but my father's who sent me 1 John 2 3-6 by this we know that we have come to know him Lastly, 1 John 3, 8 to 10. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We need this new birth because we're, we're dead in our sins. God is the author of the new birth. And magnifying God's grace is the purpose. But there's also a fruit of the new birth. And it is obedience. And it is a delightful obedience. Obedience. And here's where we can easily get confused, and this is why doctrine is so important. It is very easy to sit in church, committed to works righteousness, committed to moralism, outworking everyone around you, completely failing to understand the gospel completely failing to understand your need for redemption and believing in your heart of heart that god looks upon you and smiles because you work harder than others this is why doctrines like this must be preached because we are bent toward works righteousness we are bent toward legalism we are bent toward moralism and we have to be reminded again and again and again again that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone and christ alone check your heart are you trusting in christ or are you trusting in what you do check your heart Do you believe that you're better than those around you because of the list of things that you don't do and the list of things that you do? Or do you glory in the grace of God who has saved you and transformed you, having made you alive together with Christ? Do you delight in obedience? Or are you driven to it out of guilt, pride, self-righteousness? Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 24. If anyone says that the righteousness received is not preserved and also not increased before God by good works... but But that that those works works are merely the fruits and signs signs of justification obtained, but not a a cause of his increase. Let him be anathema. Again, this Roman Catholic idea is rooted in semi-Pelagianism. Many Christians hold to semi-Pelagianism so we actually believe this, that our moralism and our legalism is actually what keeps us in right standing with God. We believe that we're saved by grace but we're kept by works. Justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but sanctified through the law. We believe that because we're semi-pelagian and don't understand that the grace that saves you the grace that justifies you is the same grace that sanctifies you the grace that saves you is the grace that that keeps you it is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone period period And if you hear me today, check your heart. Plead with God that he might perchance open your eyes. Check your heart today. What are you trusting in for your salvation? Are you trusting in the regenerating work of the Spirit of God? And his regenerating work alone. Are you trusting in his regenerating work that opened your eyes, made you alive, put, put the breath of life in you. And, and allowed you to then turn once regenerated. And, and recognize that you're a ruined sinner in need of a savior. And that Christ died for sin once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that you might bring to God. And in being allowed to see this, have you then turned in repentance and faith, trusting in Christ alone to save you from your sin? Or is it your list? Is it your good works, your good deeds? Is it your faithfulness that you are trusting? The list of things you do, the list of things you don't do? When you finish the statement, I'm a Christian because, what comes next? I don't mean what phrase comes next. I mean, what pronoun comes next? Do you say I'm a Christian because I, or I'm a Christian because Christ. Think about that. What is your natural tendency? Where do you put the emphasis? I'm a Christian because I made this decision and I live like this and I no longer live like that and I go to church and I am faithful and I and I and I and I and I. Or. I'm a Christian because God was merciful to save me through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Where's the emphasis? Now, let me hurry to say, I'm not saying that this is all about you phrasing things the right way. I, I hope you understand what I mean by this. Where's your emphasis? Where's your trust? Where's your hope? Is it in the supernatural work of God making you alive together with Christ? Or is it in that which you view yourself as having achieved? Did God save you? Or did he just help you become a Christian? How do you finish the phrase? My prayer and my hope is that we would all come to a place where we finish the phrase with the emphasis on the person and work of Christ as our only hope of salvation, recognizing that it is because we have been made alive together with Christ that we are saved. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we bow before you in humble adoration and gratitude. grateful for the reminder the glorious person and work of your son our savior the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for us who obeyed where we could not who paid where we could not and who through His vicarious act of obedience and love exchanged His righteousness for our sinfulness, thus satisfying and turning away your wrath and transforming us from enemies to adopted sons and daughters. Oh, what glorious grace. And for that we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.